Well, good morning. I think are the children going with Miss Leslie today? So if it's okay with mom and dad, you guys can go to Children's Church with Miss Leslie. I invite you to go to the back. We're going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 today. 1 Peter 3, we're going to start in verse 18. You know, people are fascinated with the idea of extraterrestrial life. Have you got that feeling over the last few years? Is that a fascination in our culture? Intelligent life beyond what we can see and experience in the physical vicinity of our planet. That's usually how we think of that, right? And so uh, most of it we usually think of in, in terms of fiction, just stories. We have Superman and Star Wars, E.T., uh, Super Pups comes out this month, if you're excited about that one. Not me. Um, I don't even know what it is, but, you know, extraterrestrial life, it's there. We hear stories about Roswell, New Mexico, right? And, and lately, if you've been watching the news, lots of variety of news coverage about our military and its interaction with unidentified aerial phenomena, what we used to call UFOs. However, it's not just science fiction and stories about aliens that pervades our our storybooks. If you enter the bookstore, uh, you'll find the fantasy section filled with narratives about fairies, genies, ghosts, spirits, monsters. There's even an entire genre that you'll find, in, in usually in the teenage fiction section, about angels that fall in love with people and live happily ever after. Hit rewind just a few centuries, and you'll find mythology in every single culture, whether it's the Greeks, the Romans, the Celt Celtic culture, uh, the Hindu culture, the Vikings, about every other ancient civilization has their own stories about the gods. And so whether his name is Thor or Zeus or Jupiter or Baal, uh, all these cultures have their own stories about their pantheon, their, their mythology. And, and all of these, while, while oftentimes just being fun stories that we like going to the movies or reading a good book, they, they deal with a reality, an idea that we are not alone. That's the question, really, is being asked in a lot of them, aren't they? And a lot of them are just fantasy, fiction, and uh, they're not actually putting something out there that we might not be. But, but really the question is, are, are, we really, uh, are we all alone or, or not? There are these beings that are more powerful, more intelligent, more beautiful than we are. In the Bible, we find a parallel idea that oftentimes many of these stories come from. And the Bible gives a generic term to them and calls them angels. Now, because the Bible is a collection of, of books, uh, of writings that are primarily focused on, number one, who our God is, who we are, and, and how we can be reconciled in a relationship to Jesus Christ, to our God through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, the Bible deals with the existence of angels. It deals with the existence of beings that are not human, um, but it doesn't give us a lot of details, does it? How many of you have ever read Angels two, two, chapter 2, verse 3? It, it's not there, right? And, and I think part of that is because, you know, while they exist and they interact and our, our battle, our real enemy is not of flesh and blood, he's an angel that's fallen, um, the Bible deals with their existence, but because the Bible is focused on God, us, and how we can be reconciled to him, it, it doesn't give us um, a complete picture of their world. That's, that's just not what the scripture is, in, intends to do. 
but it tells us of their existence. It doesn't attempt to give us a complete picture of their world or even how many species of angels might exist, or even if species is the right word to describe that. But the Bible teaches us about the existence of spiritual beings that are not human. And while the world may call them one thing, the Bible usually just labels them as angels. So what are some of the categories of angels? We, we know about cherubim. How many have heard of cherub before? Cherubim? You hear that, see the I-M on the end of the word? That just means it's plural in Hebrew. So cherub is singular. Cherubim is more than one cherub. Uh, now you know Hebrew, right? So cherubim are winged ones. That's all it means. They're winged angels. We, we hear about seraphim. These are the burning ones. Uh, we, we read of four specific angels that, that are gathered around the throne of God, and day after day after day they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it seems like there's just four within this species, or whatever you want to call it, that are very unique in nature, but... Um, that's their purpose. They declare God's holiness day after day and have that unique privileged position of being before God's throne and around his throne crying that out. We read of angels that um, the prophets are only able to describe in human terms as if they were wheels within wheels and there's eyes on those wheels. It's like they're a chariot that, that the, the Son of God rides on. And um, overall, though, we, we understand that there are two major categories. There are Angels that are elect, who serve our God for good, and angels that have rebelled and are devoted to evil and destruction, who are condemned for eternity. Now, we also want to recognize that we live in a culture that's very scientific, right? I mean, there's lots of, I understand, there's lots of um, speculation, a lot of superstition out there, but, but if you look at our culture as a whole, we, we tend to be pretty scientific you, know, you want to know truth, what, what are people going to say? Show me, the, show me the evidence, yeah, but the last three years since the pandemic, show me the science, all right, that's the mantra of the day. Show me the science, but the evidence. And, um, and so oftentimes the existence of this spiritual realm is just dismissed. I can't see it with my eyes, I can't touch it with my hands, so therefore there's no empirical evidence to show me the science. And yet from time to time we come face to face with evil, don't we? We look at it in the world, and we see pure evil that takes place. The pure evil of what this second category embodies, these demons. And just a few months ago, we read in the news in horror as we heard of the atrocities that were committed in Israel. As several drug-induced, demon-possessed individuals, and I believe that's what happened, Descended on communities, they murdered innocent children, they raped helpless women, they pillaged entire neighborhoods in a demon-infused rage. Be assured that the Bible teaches us about these angels, sometimes calls them authorities and powers. It teaches us that, the, that they are real, and, and often we, we might be tempted to be afraid of what they might be able to do to us. Is that ever a temptation? Yeah, you think of the demonic world and you don't understand it, you don't know where it's at or how it works, and... And if you encounter it, you, we have a tendency to, oh, why, why do I, and we, we cower a little bit if we're, our theology isn't straight. Um, usually just because we don't understand it. But we're going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 today, and Peter, he writes his letter to individuals who themselves had been subject, the subjects of great suffering. 
And, and I want you to understand that, that this audience that Peter's writing to, many of them were exposed to, a, to great spiritual warfare in their lives. And they knew that a lot of the suffering that they experienced, real suffering in their life, came about because those who persecuted them, the humans in flesh and blood that persecuted them, did so because they were inspired by an enemy which is not of flesh and blood, this angelic world that Peter's going to refer to. And so today we come to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, and it's a passage that addresses this spiritual world of angelic beings, and it reveals to us a Christian perspective about the spiritual realm in the context of our suffering, and in the context of the victory which has already been accomplished by Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. Amen? Praise be to God that we have victory already. And, and that, if you, miss, if you get anything else today, understand that Peter's main point here as he's talking about the spiritual realm is that Jesus is already victorious. He's already accomplished the victory. And so in that, we can take great comfort. And I'll be honest with you, this passage is probably one of the most challenging passages of the entire New Testament. Certainly the most challenging text that we're going to find in all of 1 Peter. Uh, Martin Luther wrote in his commentary 500 years ago, he said this. He said, this is a strange text <laughs> and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the new testament for i do not certainly know what saint peter means so if martin luther was there and, and he looked at this passage and went what in the world i, I think we're in really good company okay um but we're going to tackle it anyway we're going to take a look at it and if you're here for the first time uh and trust me we don't we don't go looking for obscure weird passages like this one um, but our philosophy of preaching and teaching and ministry here is, is we preach the word. We tend to go through a book of the Bible, and we go through it passage by passage. And, uh, and, and we examine what God has shown us there, what God has taught us. And so when we come to a tough passage like today's, we're going to tackle it, and we're going to look at it. And we're going to see what treasure we can uncover here. And it is indeed challenging, but I believe that there is an important message that God wants us to understand. So let's begin by praying together and asking God's Spirit to help us understand uh, the truth that he's put here for us. Will you join me? Father, we, um, we today we come to a passage of Scripture that you've given to us, that your Spirit has inspired and, and caused to be inscribed on parchment and then passed down to us, and we, we know that the words that are here are from you. And so we know that the words that are here are good. And no matter how challenging a text may be, we trust you to teach us, we trust you to reveal uh, truth and um, everything that we need to know about life and godliness here in your word. And so I pray that you'd help us to understand the words that are here. I, I pray also that you'd help us to interpret it correctly. Help me as I preach it, that my words would be clear, that my thoughts would be cohesive. Um, Father, above anything else, I pray that you'd help us to walk away from here, not only understanding your word better, but also um, living it out, also knowing how we might obey you in our lives today. It's in your name we pray, amen. Well, verse 18 is probably the uh, easiest part of our passage today, so why don't we start there. It's uh, grammatically a quite a difficult passage to actually translate, and I think part of that is because verse 18 is probably an ancient hymn of the church. We just sang some songs together, some beautiful music about our Lord Jesus Christ and the victory that he's accomplished. Um, 
verse 18 is probably the words of an ancient hymn. It's a chorus or maybe a verse that Peter's audience probably was familiar with. They probably sang it on Sunday mornings. And understand that Peter's been encouraging these Christians who were suffering at the hands of people around them. And their suffering was going to get worse in the days to come. Peter himself is going to be crucified probably within the next year or two after writing this letter. But in the midst of that suffering, Peter reminds these people that when we suffer, we need to let it be done for doing what is good. There's no point in suffering, if, if you know that you're going to be persecuted for your faith, for following Jesus Christ, there's no point in suffering for doing what's bad, right? Do what's good, and if you're going to suffer, let it be for that and for following Jesus Christ. And so he reminds them of this. When we suffer, he says, never lose sight of your objective that we are here to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That is our privilege. That's our delight. And as we obey him by doing good, we are following Jesus' pattern that he sets for us just as much as we are following his example in suffering. And so in the middle of that discussion about suffering and proclaiming Jesus through our words and our actions, Peter quotes what was probably this part of a hymn that these Christians would have been familiar with. And he says in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? Let's just consider those words for a minute. This is, this is our victory. As believers in Jesus Christ, you can face any kind of suffering knowing that our Savior first suffered for us. And you might be tempted to, to lose heart because your suffering is unjust. You ever been there? Ever been persecuted? And you went, that was wrong. I didn't deserve that. Uh, am I alone? Has anybody here suffered for, have you ever suffered for something you didn't deserve? Two of you, three of you. Okay, great. <laughs> all right. It happens. It happens to all of us. Sometimes it happens because you're a Christian and people are, are focused on, on persecuting you because of who you believe in and who you follow. But we can take great comfort that, that Christ first suffered for us. Remember that Christ, he suffered for our sins. And what is unjust is that the man who was just, that means the man who was righteous, who was right with God, he died in the place of those who were unjust. Those who are not right with God. He didn't deserve to be there. And yet he suffered in our place. God became one of us, and he chose to pay the penalty for our sins. If you remember over in 2 Corinthians, um, Paul describes in chapter 5, verse 21, a similar passage. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's one of my favorite passages of scripture. But are you catching what it says there? Jesus, when he was on the cross, became your sin. And God's wrath was fully unleashed on the Son of God. Because when he saw Jesus on the cross, God's wrath was being propitiated. And he did so. So that when God looks at you, having placed your faith in Jesus Christ, by God's grace, God looks at you and what does he see? He sees the righteousness of Jesus. He has given to you his righteousness. It's the great substitution. It's the great swap. 
And Peter reminds us that Jesus did this for the purpose of bringing us to God. Now we talked, we went through the story uh, uh, last year, a year before that, and we, we talked about how mankind has rebelled against our Creator. And from the very beginning, uh, right after man sinned, before he was kicked out of the garden, what did God do? Do you remember Genesis 3.15? He made a, a promise. And in Genesis 3.15, we call it the first gospel, the gospel according to Genesis. God says, look, he cursed the serpent. He sent Adam and Eve to a, a land that um, was not going to yield the fruit that they worked for as they expected it to. Uh, they were going to suffer and they were going to deal with sin for all of mankind's history. But before they leave, God says in Genesis 3.15, he says, look, I'm going to send a deliverer. From the seed of the woman is going to come one, and that deliverer is going to come, and, and a serpent is going to bruise his heel. What happens when a serpent bruises your heel? You, you die. <laughs> All right? You, you have a poisonous serpent that bites you in the foot. You're, you're likely going to die. It's usually fatal, if, especially if it's the right kind of snake, right? And so Satan would deliver a death blow to God's deliverer. And throughout the Old Testament, the, the people of God were trying to figure out, you know, how does this work? How does the Messiah come and deliver us, and yet he, he the fatal blow is struck? How, how does that work together? But the second part of the promise in Genesis 3.15 is that not only would his heel be bruised, but he would crush the head of the serpent. He would have victory. And so our Messiah would obtain the victory and it would come through his death. And, and this is, in fact, exactly what Jesus did, is it not? Jesus accomplished the victory on the cross. He died for our sins when Satan dealt a fatal blow, but Satan was crushed because Jesus accomplished the victory that none of us could. He had victory over our sin, and thus he reconciled us to our Creator. But Jesus was made alive in the Spirit, as this hymn sang, his his resurrection achieved victory over our ancient foe, death itself. And if you are here today, I, I, I want you to know this. If you are here today and, and you have not turned from your sin, if you sit here and, and you know that you are still an enemy of God, you, you stand apart from Him, you are at war with your God, then you are still dead in your sins if you have not turned from your sins. And the solution... There is one solution for you. It is not being good. It is not coming to church. It's not doing good deeds and, and trying to earn your way to God. Nothing that you do will accomplish and, and grant to you God's favor or heaven or eternal life. You are apart from him forever unless you find the one solution, and that solution is Jesus Christ. The solution is to turn away from your sin and to believe in Jesus Christ who suffered once for your sins. He doesn't ever have to do it again. He doesn't have to die again because he accomplished once and for all what you and I could not do. He never has to repeat it again. The Bible tells us that Jesus, the righteous, died for us who are unrighteous. If you're here today and you've not yet received that, I want you to understand that the Spirit of God calls to you. Perhaps you feel him tugging at your heart today. And the victory that Jesus accomplished over sin and death is your victory if you would trust him to bring you to God. 
And you don't have to come up here and walk up an aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. Right now where you're sitting, you can say, God, I believe. I, I turn from my sin. I don't want this any longer. And I turn to you. I turn to Jesus Christ who died in my place. And if you receive that gift, then you receive eternal life and everything that comes with it. And if you're here today and you have believed on Jesus, perhaps you just believed on him right now in these last few seconds, and you went, I believe. I do believe. No matter whether it happened a few seconds ago or 80 years ago in your life, understand that the Bible declares that you are alive in Jesus Christ. You have received eternal life. You stand righteous before a holy God, and you already have the victory because it was not you who had to win it but Jesus Christ who did. I don't want you to miss this glorious truth. I want you to know how I said that. Note that I I did not say that one day we will have victory, right? Do we believe that someday the victory will come to us? Someday Jesus will win? (laughs) It's already happened. Jesus has already accomplished the victory, and the Bible doesn't teach us that it's going to be someday in the future, but the victory has already been won. Thank you. Amen. Keep in mind, however, that Christ's victory is not only a victory over sin. It's not only a victory over death. It is also a victory over the world of demons. These spiritual beings of darkness that long ago rebelled against our creator and are at war with him and always will be. Here's where the fun begins. You ready? Come to verses 19 and 20. Let's just start with that. He says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Oh boy, huh? What do we do with that? Let me tell you a story. Story is one of the most popular heroes of ancient Greek literature. The Greeks told the story of a god, the chief of the gods they believed, and his name was Zeus. And the king of their gods would come down on a regular basis and he had a tendency to chase after human women. And one of those women was a woman named Alcimene. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right. But Zeus took on the form of her husband and he slept with her. And the child that came out of that relationship was a, what they called the demigods. And his name was, anybody know? Hercules. Yeah, this is the stuff of, stuff of Disney movies. Right? Yeah, this is what we're teaching our children. Hercules. And so he's a half-god, half-human. He grows up to become one of the most powerful of these demigods. He killed all kinds of monsters, and there's all kinds of stories about Hercules' great victories. And Greek mythology is filled with stories that are similar to this one. Stories that are similar to Hercules. He's just probably the most popular. But what is interesting, okay, stick stick with me on this, okay, is when we turn to the pages of Genesis, we discover a text in God's Word that teaches us that these stories were probably actually founded on a great evil that was committed in ancient history in a civilization long before ours. Genesis 6 tells us the story of what were called the sons of God. And the sons of God was an ancient way of referring to angels. 
And in Genesis 6, um, these sons of God saw the daughters of men. They saw that they were beautiful, and they came to them. And the text of Genesis tells us that these women became pregnant. They gave birth to children. And I, I cry sometimes, too, when I read that passage. <laughs> uh, it's, um, and so they gave birth to these children, and, and these Nephilim were described in Genesis 6-4 as the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. I mean, it sounds like Hercules, doesn't it? Genesis teaches us that these were the, the, probably the source of these other stories throughout all these other cultures of these, these heroes of old. And we're not told much beyond that. <laughs> That's not much to go on, is it? We're just told a little bit, we're told a short story, and we're told that the flood came and part of it was because of this. And I don't think that we need to know more from Scripture because God has given us all that we need to know. And this great evil was one of the reasons that God destroyed the world with a flood. And God punished those angels in a way that it seems um, it, it was never repeated again. We have stories of it. Uh, it's popular in movies and books today, but um, there's no indication that this has happened anymore. I, I believe that's why Peter brings up Noah in our passage. I, I think he's referring back to Genesis chapter 6, and right in the middle of this discussion about suffering, he refers to these spirits who did not obey. And, and I've thought about this biblical account that's touched upon in Genesis and a handful of other places. You, you'll see You'll see Jude talks about this, Second Peter, just really brief mentions of, of this tie-in to Genesis chapter 6. And, um, and other people have thought about these as well. There's a lot of people that read Genesis chapter 6, and like us, they went, what? <laughs> How do we deal with that? What's going on here? In fact, before Jesus was born, there was a whole community of Jews called the Essenes, and um, they actually wrote stories about these things too. Uh, they had science fiction and their own historical fiction, and they took Genesis chapter 6 and they said, huh, I wonder what all this was like. And so they wrote other books that aren't in the Bible, that are not inspired by God, but they were, they were stories that they enjoyed. Um, two of those are called the books of First and Second Enoch. I've been reading it for the first time. It's really fascinating. Um, some good theology in it. You know, these were believers. Uh, these were Jewish people who had some sound theology, but they, they wrote some fiction. And they tried to embellish Genesis chapter 6, and, and they brought Enoch. Do you remember who Enoch was? He was the one who walked with God, and then he was no more. And so God took him uh, before he died. And so they, they brought Genesis 6 together and Enoch together and said, huh, what would happen if you put those two together? And so in these stories, Enoch gets taken up to heaven, and, and Enoch meets these angels that sinned in this way. And they say, please pray for us. God's judging us. And and uh, do something for us. So Enoch prays, and he goes to God, and God says, uh-uh, there, there's no mercy for these. You go preach to them my judgment, and you tell them what's in store for them. And so Enoch goes, and he preaches to these spirits that were being judged by God for this horrible, horrible evil that was committed in Genesis chapter 6. And uh, I believe that many of the stories of Greek and Roman mythology probably come out of these events. That's probably the, the historical event that, that gave rise to this mythology. And, and I know we look at it and go, <laughs> you're, you're really telling me that this happened in history. And, 
And, and all I can say is what we have to go on is that this is something that is ancient civilization. It's not something that we can relate to. It doesn't happen in our day. Uh, probably not something that could be related to after the flood. But the Bible tells us that some of these things happened, and um, that's part of the reason that God destroyed that civilization and delivered Noah through it. So let's ask a question about this, though. Why would the angels do this thing that Genesis records? These demons, not, not the good angels. We're told that they saw the daughters of women, they saw they were beautiful, so there was, there was that purpose. But I believe that in the context of Genesis that there was one other great reason, and it was this. God had made a promise. God had made a promise to Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned that he was going to send a deliverer, and who would that deliverer be? He would be from their offspring. He would be of the seed of the woman. And so the angels, in order to subvert God's promise, this one who would one day crush the head of the serpent, that would reconcile man, God, mankind back to their creator, I suspect, okay, again, we don't have a lot to go on, so I'm trying to reason through this, I suspect that a group of angels instigated some plan to pollute the human race. In the context of Genesis, the promise is central to the theme of that entire book. And it seems that part of what's happening there is an effort to undermine God's promise and to pollute the human race. And so it seems they started some breeding program with mankind in an effort to achieve their own victory over God. They were going to defeat the promise. Sounds bizarre, doesn't it? <laughs> Believe me, I, I'm preaching this. It sounds bizarre to me. Um, and, and I think this is the point. This great evil that took place thousands upon thousands of years ago, before written history that we have, but is recorded in Scripture and ancient mythology, was an abomination, and God destroyed the human race in part because of this and other abominations of great violence that were taking place in that time. And the passages of the Bible that touch on this seem to point to a judgment that, that took place. We're not told specifics about this judgment, but there was a judgment that not all, not all the demonic realm was involved in. They weren't necessarily all involved in this particular act, but those that did have been imprisoned in some way unique to their punishment and in punishment for their particular rebellion that happened so long ago. God judged these demons. He, he destroyed the Nephilim later on, the the, the Israelites are going to come to the promised land and they're going to see people that were tall like Goliath and they're going to say, they're Nephilim, they're Nephilim. I think they're calling back to the days of Genesis. I don't think they really were the Nephilim, but they were, remember it was the ten spies that told that story. And God destroyed the Nephilim. He judged the world that was filled with great violence and God delivered one family, one man, his wife, his three sons, and his three daughters-in-law. Eight people in all. And that man's name was Noah. They were brought safely through the water in an ark that God had commanded him to make. But, but Peter gives us a very brief glimpse at something that took place in connection with the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus into heaven. Because we believe that Jesus was made alive, and then he went and he proclaimed to spirits in prison, First Peter tells us. And that's about all we're told. But I, but I think that there's a point to what 
Peter's telling us. It's the point that the people in Peter's day would have understood better than us because they were more familiar with these biblical passages and some of the fictional writings like First and Second Enoch. And what Peter tells us is that not Enoch went to these spirits in prison because First and Second Enoch talk about how Enoch was taken up to heaven and then he preached that message of judgment. But rather than Enoch going, this, Peter contradicts that and he says Jesus went to these spirits and preached to them. And so that leads us to the next question, right? Are you thinking it? Are you with me on it? What, what's the question in your mind right now? Let's see if we're all on the same page. Okay, where did Jesus go? Okay, that's one of them. Yeah, people talk about him descending to hell or descending to heaven. And yeah, any others? Where am I going with this? Yeah, that's a big question. Okay, there is a point. Good question. What did he preach? Anybody think that? Deb, you're ahead of us all. Victory over these spirits. Yeah, what did he preach? Because usually when we think of preaching, what do our minds go to? We preach the gospel. We preach the good news. We preach a sermon. We're preaching God's word. Well, keep in mind that the word preach, it just means to proclaim. It means to proclaim something. So his purpose in preaching, I do not believe, was to preach the gospel. It was not to preach a second chance to these demons. His purpose was not to save them because it, it was too late for them. So, so what did he proclaim? Deb, Deb already told us. We, we're not told the words that he spoke, but it's my opinion that Jesus went and he preached something of victory. And I have a feeling that Jesus had something to say to them that quite possibly had to do with the promise. A promise had been made in Genesis chapter 3.15 that he would crush the head of the serpent. That one day the deliverer would come and he would accomplish that victory. And it was these specific angels that tried to undermine that promise by destroying the human race. And when Jesus accomplished everything that was just described for us in chapter 3, verse 18 of 1 Peter, what he did on the cross accomplished victory. Amen? God created mankind for his glory. But I think that much of human history has a lot to do with God showing the demonic world his greatness and his power. And I think a lot of human history and everything that we're involved in, and the Bible tells us that the angels watch. And I think it's not only the the elect angels but also the fallen angels that watch us and we are on display and what we are displaying is god's greatness what he can do with something much less powerful what jesus christ can do with something much less intelligent what the spirit of god can do with something much less beautiful than these angelic spirits God even created man in his image. And then the ultimate act of victory, God himself took on human flesh. He became lower than the angels, and then he elevated to a position in which we will judge the angels. He lived, he died, and the ultimate act of victory, God him took on flesh, he died on the cross, he was made alive in the spirit, and it's not a quiet victory in which we gather together on Easter morning and we go, hoorah, yay, Jesus rose, right? No. 
Christ's victory through his death and his resurrection is the central focal point of all of human history, and it was intended to be a display of his ultimate triumph over Satan and his horde of fallen minions. Jesus' proclamation to these demons was not for their salvation. That, that's a concept that is foreign to the Bible. Uh, I, I know there are some that read this passage and they interpret that Jesus descended into hell and that he preached to people that were in hell in order to give them a second chance. And I think that also is foreign to what we're taught in the scripture. His proclamation was one of his great victory. Uh, it, was, it was not one of. It was a proclamation of his greatest victory over the darkness over his darkest, most vile enemy. There's a parallel passage in Colossians where Paul tells us something like Peter does. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now listen to verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Rulers and authorities is a, a pair of words that usually is referring to angelic beings. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And it's this picture of a Roman soldier, a Roman general, who goes off to war and he accomplishes a great victory and he brings back the enemy in a parade and, and they are paraded through the city of Rome in their shame. And it's this picture that Jesus has accomplished this victory and at the cross he accomplished the ultimate victory and he has paraded Satan and his minions in their defeat. Jesus has accomplished the victory. Jesus accomplished victory over sin. He accomplished victory over death. Jesus accomplished victory over Satan. And my friend, understand this morning that Christ is your victory. Well, Peter's taken on something quite a journey through ancient times, right? Touches on it. And through this short lesson about angelic spirits, Peter uses a recent mention of um, his recent mention of Noah and the flood. And, and he then jumps to make a, an, an a loose analogy about baptism. You see, just as Noah and his family were saved through the flood and their lives were preserved on the ark in the midst of water, Christians also have experienced a, a similar experience through water. Uh, how, how was Noah saved? By grace, through faith in our God, in a deliverer who would one day come. And in a beautiful demonstration of that salvation that took place, um, Noah also was saved through the water. And it was a physical, um, a physical act of salvation that reflected the salvation that had already happened because he trusted God. In a similar way, okay, and again, this is a loose analogy that Peter makes, in a similar way, how are you saved? By grace, through faith. And in your baptism, there's a beautiful picture of how you died to, Jesus Christ, died to your former sins and have been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. And like Noah was saved through fire, through, wow, I'm switching my words. Like Noah was saved through water, you also, in baptism, are saved through water. Your salvation is by God's grace through faith. It happens before you were ever baptized. But 
the baptism as a picture of that salvation that took place, similar to Noah's. Look at verses 21 and 22. He goes on, he says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So he specifically tells us here about these spirits, these angels that have been now subjected to Jesus. He speaks about of our salvation in connection with baptism, and he makes it very clear that, that it is not an a, it's not the act of being baptized which saves you. We agree on that, right? It's not the act of baptism which saves you, and that's what he's referring to. He says it's, it's not the removal of dirt. Going into the water is not what saved you from your sins. What saved you is what's happened in your heart before you were baptized. That comes in very close succession with your baptism. No work is ever able to save us from our sins. In fact, he, he's just finished demonstrating that, that Jesus is the one who accomplishes victory, right? However, baptism is a glorious act in which each one of us declares that victory, that victory that Jesus has accomplished. A, a sinner is saved, not when they step into the physical waters of baptism, but through their faith in Christ in whom they put their trust when they repented of their sin. This is the appeal to which Peter's referring. Baptism testifies to Christ's work in our lives, and it's an act of obedience in which I declare and you declare that Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord. Even if, if that declaration and that public identification that you make with Jesus in the waters of baptism is going to be the very thing that leads to your suffering. In the context of 1 Peter, I want you to understand that when he talks about baptism and the importance of baptism, he's not just talking about, oh, do I really want to do this or not? The people he's writing to, if they are baptized, they may lose their life because of that choice. You go around the world today, especially in the Middle East, you can say, I, I follow Jesus, I, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for sins. And, and your family and friends will say, ah, come on, no, you need to really rethink this. But the moment that you were baptized and you publicly identify yourself with Jesus Christ in that way, believers in the Middle East understand that the average lifespan that they have from that point forward is between four and five years. The average lifespan of a Christian in the Middle East, in some countries like Iran, is less than five years from the moment they are baptized. They know that it will cost them everything. Now, not only is Jesus our victory over sin and death, but he is also your victory! Exclamation point. He is our example that we follow. He is our pattern. And these people who are suffering for Jesus needed to understand that even if following Jesus means our own death, we will follow him to the ends of the earth. And today he sits at the right hand of God, and all power and authority has been given to him, and the angels who rebelled against him are now subject to him. Every knee bows, and we are told that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Therefore, no matter what you endure during this life, we still follow him because he has already won the victory. It is only a matter of time before the sentence against Satan is carried out. 
and Satan knows that he is operating on borrowed time. Okay. There's so much more we could talk about. We're not going to be able to do that today, but, but I don't want us to leave here without thinking through how, how does this impact me today? What, what do I walk away from here? How do I apply a, a passage like this where Martin Luther said, I don't know what to do with this. What do we do? Let me give you a few suggestions. Whether you agree with my interpretation of Genesis 6 or not, and, and, and that's fine. First, I, I, I want to encourage us that when we come to a difficult passage like this, it, it's easy for us to raise our eyebrows a little bit and ask, you know, what, what in the world? Genesis 6, Jude, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, they, they give us this brief glimpse at civilization before the great flood. And they give us a brief peek at the spiritual warfare that has been happening for thousands of years since, since Satan and his horde rebelled in heaven. And if we're honest with ourselves, some of what is described is completely outside of our experience. And it's completely outside the experience of civilization after the flood in many ways. So there's a temptation to come to passages like this and just dismiss it and go, eh, you know, no, I don't believe that. Now, now while I don't claim to have all the answers about these passages, and, and nor do I claim to be infallible in my interpretation of it, I, I do want it to encourage that we develop within ourselves a default response to the Scripture. There's a default response that should take place in our hearts. When I come to any passage of Scripture, whether it challenges my own sin, whether it challenges my way of walking in this life, whether it challenges my understanding of what's real, we should cry out, God, I believe you. If you say it's so, then I will trust what you say. There may be questions about whether our own presupp what our presuppositions are when we come to a text of Scripture. There may be uh, some different interpretations that we may have some disagreements about or commentaries may disagree about. And we want to make sure that we're interpreting a passage correctly. But let us be careful that we never approach God's word with the attitude that some other source tells me differently and so therefore God's word is wrong. And so let's start with the foundation that God is always faithful he revealed his word exactly as he intended to. And then from that point, let's continue to study the scripture from there. Can we agree on that? Secondly, this passage, while not primarily about baptism, it does address the importance of identifying ourselves with Jesus Christ in this way. He's commanded us to do it. Peter was writing to people who may have hesitated to be baptized because for some of them it could cost them their very lives. So if you have not obeyed Christ in this manner by publicly identifying yourself with Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism, I would plead with you to consider the importance of this step in your Christian walk. Professing faith in Jesus and then refusing to be baptized is like saying, I do at the altar, but I refuse to wear a ring that would identify myself with you. Prof 
professing faith in Jesus is like the ring on our finger that says, I belong to him. We're going to schedule a baptism service on February the 10th. And uh, if you haven't been baptized, three, three weeks from today, if you haven't obeyed your Lord in this manner, don't put it off. Don't, don't put it off and wait till next year or the next opportunity. Obey him in it now. Follow him in, in that and declare to the world, to your family, to your church, I am a follower of Jesus. I believe in him. And then finally, I, I know we're a little bit over today, but let us never forget, let us never forget, and here's the big point that, that Peter's making to this, this group of people. Jesus has accomplished the victory. And I don't know the circumstances of your life and the spiritual battle that you're facing, the struggles, the temptations, the fears. No matter what is coming at you, whether it is fear or worry or loneliness, do not fear man. Do not fear the angelic realm where our enemy really is. In Acts chapter 5, when the officials arrested Peter and the apostles, they said, we strictly charge you not to teach in the name. Yet here you fill up Jerusalem with your teaching, and you, in, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And then down in verse 41, it says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple... And from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. And so my friend, understand going out from here that the victory has been won. Not only victory over sin, not only victory over death, but victory over Satan and his minions. We do not need to fear what man may do to us. They can take our life, but that only means that we get to be with Jesus that much sooner. We do not need to fear the spiritual world either, for we're told elsewhere, greater is the one who is in us than the one who is in this world. And so if you do not know Jesus, my plea to you today is believe on him and receive life in his name because he paid the price for your sins. And you're called, your spirit calls to you today to trust in him. Obey him by accepting his forgiveness. And if you follow him, let us also go out in confidence knowing that Christ is our victory. Amen. Father, we come before you today and we thank you. We thank you for passages like this that challenge us, that make us think, that make us question things and make us search throughout the entire scripture. We thank you that there are texts that you've given to us that, that make us search the scriptures. And make us think about what you have accomplished for us. And make us think about the big picture that remind us that mankind is not the center of the universe, but that you are. And we thank you that Jesus Christ has accomplished the victory through the cross. And so as we go out from here, might we remember that? Might we proclaim Jesus Christ because he is our Lord, he is our Savior, and he is our victory. We pray that you glorify your name through us. Amen.